Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. We are your hosts, Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Welcome, or as they would say in early modern English, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. Welcome to our third Halloween special. Our guest today is Gemma Holman, the author of the book on the Royal Witches. Gemma, our Gemma, and I... We love all things royal, so with Halloween approaching, we figured this is the best time to talk about a crossover. The royal family and witchcraft. How would that go together? Joan of Navarre, Elena Cobham, Elizabeth Woodville, Jaquetta of Luxembourg. These are the women accused of witchcraft in the 15th century. Let's see how they fared. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Gemma! Hello! Got there in the end. How are you doing? You keeping dry? Have you got rain where you are? It's pouring down here. Yep. Oh, really? No, it's dry here. Well, oh. okay, Scotland. Scotland is dry. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I spy a copy of my book behind you. <laughs> Pride of <Faith. laughs> Why, You have not got it in the background. You need to put it back in the background. I can't put the iPad on the background. I have oh, it on oh, the iPad. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what that's up. Yeah. See, this is the problem with Kindles. I'm not a fan of the Kindle. Natalie's been trying to get me into the Kindle. I can't do it. <laughs> I use it for like the sort of cheap, trashy fiction books that I like to read. <laughs> That's and good then, enough. Yeah, and I like have my bookshelves for like my nice books I want to keep. <laughs> yeah, that is a good idea. I like it for both. Sometimes history books are really big and chunky and they're really hard to hold when you're reading. So that's where the Kindle helps. Yes. And you can highlight yeah. and you can do whatever you want with it and you can find things and you can take the chunkiest one with you when you travel. You can't do that with an actual book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is definitely true. So um, I should make a wish then, I suppose, because I'm with two Gemmas. Is that that's how it goes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. There are so many books and films and TV shows about witches over the centuries, but there's not actually that many on Royal Witches. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure, really, because that's one of the things that really drew me to the topic area. You know, we we love witches as a culture, um, and, you know, that's sort of shown very clearly by how much it's still in popular culture today in films and TV and books. Like, we love magic, and, you know, there's so much about the early modern witch hunts, and people love reading about, you know, like Salem and all these things that happened, and yet people don't really realise that Mm, the sort of roots of all of those started in the late medieval period. And yeah, again, we're kind of used to the idea that it was the common people who were caught up in all these accusations and stuff. And so, yeah, the first time I sort of stumbled across all of this was um, I found out about Eleanor Cobham, who's the second woman in my book. And I found out that she'd been accused of witchcraft and had this big trial. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of this. And, you know, she's the wife of a prince of England and the heir to the throne. And I was like, okay, that's you know, very high up. And as I started to do digging and saw that actually there were also two queens and the mother-in-law of a queen, uh, the mother of a queen, uh, also accused. I was just like, how have I never heard of any of these things? And especially when, uh, you know, two of the women are the Woodfills, who are really famous medieval women that, you know, even if you don't know someone from the medieval period, you, you might have heard of the Woodvilles. And yet I still hadn't heard necessarily that they were tangled up in witchcraft. The only reference I'd seen to it beforehand was many years beforehand when I had read Philippa Gregory's uh, novels and she sort of has a bit of witchcraft going on in going on in there. Um, and I just kind of thought it was 
as like a bit of you know like artistic license make the story a bit interesting Mm. so then to find out oh actually it's based in real accusations was really surprising and I don't really know why because we we do love hearing about scandalous royal women and you know the Tudors capture the imagination so much you know particularly Anne Boleyn you know again she's got this kind of scandalous woman close to the heart of the royal family uh has all these false accusations thrown around you know her her case mirrors a lot of what happens the previous century and so yeah I think it's a real kind of mistrick there um, to see just how it could sort of strike at the heart and you know this is a time where people are a lot more academic about their accusations of witchcraft you know it's not the time of these mass mass witch hunts where anyone can point a finger and accuse somebody and the whole town will be like yeah okay you know they must be a witch you know people Mm. were starting to believe more and more that people could be witches but they still weren't quite sure what form that took and they were still quite skeptical in that and so they did analyze cases more to see well was this person really a witch you know what's going on here and so yeah the fact that it could then strike so high up society uh is really interesting you didn't include Amberlynn and she does have witchcraft accusations against her was there a reason you didn't include Amberlynn I decided not to look at her just because I wanted to focus very much on the 15th century mm-hmm. and that sort of that real change over period you know the medieval period is starting to draw to a close you're starting to get into the renaissance and you know the early modern period and a lot is changing in society you know you get the invention of the printing press which completely revolutionizes societies across Europe there's so many ideas flowing everywhere in England you've got the use of English is becoming more and more widespread in the court um, and that also makes it easier for knowledge to transmit between classes and it really is that time as I said where belief in witchcraft is evolving so at the start of the century where my first case is about the word witch didn't exist. People weren't talking about witches and witchcraft. They were talking about magic and evil magic and people who were using evil magic, but they didn't have a label assigned to them that they are therefore a witch. It's just Mm. someone who is using magic. And then by the end of the century, just a couple of years after the last case that I look at, you have the Malleus Maleficarum being published, which is this sort of big witch hunting manual um, that comes out in Germany. And there's quite a few others that come out sort of around a similar time. And this is where people are now sitting down and going, right, there are people called witches. This is what they look like. This is how you find them. You know, they're normally women. They might be promiscuous women. They're going to be people on the edges of society. They're going to be using magic for these reasons. And so the fact that in those hundred years, you have that complete change and development of witchcraft and that really goes hand in hand with the cases that I explore each case gets more and more detailed in the accusations against them and like what exactly is defined you know the first case it's again it's really used uh, loose thing saying oh they used evil magic but there's no explanation of what that Mm -hmm. entails Whereas the last cases, you know, they say there were these figurines and they're doing spells and they've made astrological charts and it's a lot more detailed in that. And so I thought it was really interesting to chart 
how that change in belief in magic fit in with the changes in the cases that came up. And although obviously, as you say, there's kind of rumours around Anne Boleyn about, oh, did she maybe bewitch the king into loving her? It's very much just that bit later on. You know, it's another 50, 60 years on from the last case in the book. And so much more has changed in society. Um, And, you know, it's only a couple of around the Tudor period that you start to get actual witchcraft laws where, you know, it becomes properly illegal in the law to be a witch. Before it was very much a crime for the church and a sort of moral thing. Um, And so it was just that bit different that I thought it wouldn't quite fit in. But uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how there's still hints of that as you do get into the Tudor period of, oh, there's a mysterious woman at court and she's got the interest of the king and she's suddenly got all this power. And, well, you know, why is that happening? You know, might there be something else underneath it? Yeah, it's quite interesting because Eleanor and... Elizabeth, they're both accused of love potions and making their husbands fall in love with them. I mean, sometimes we can say, like, oh, this changed, but it's around Queen Camilla and Meghan Markle, you still have that accusations thrown, mm-hmm. and it's other women that are throwing these accusations still today. Do you think, why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it is really interesting, actually, because a lot of that sort of came out around when when the book was being published. Um, And I I did actually write an article sort of slightly comparing things, looking at at Princess Catherine and and Meghan Markle. Again, as you say, there's it's it's surprising how many similarities there are, you know, when you sort of have the person who's married into the royal family who's seen as the right status and seen as behaving in the right way and is following all the rules and how they're treated versus someone who comes in from the outside. They might be from a different country. They might be divorced. They might have had previous relationships. As you say, like Eleanor had been a mistress beforehand and Elizabeth had been married before with children. So both of these women aren't necessarily of the right moral fibre to be marrying into the royal family. And it is really interesting to see how much of a difference it does still make and the suspicion with which people have viewed. You know, Eleanor very much is seen after her downfall. She's very much seen as having been this greedy social climber. You know, she's come from a lower class family. She's from a knightly family. Uh, She's not the right status for her husband. And so they go, well, you know, of course, she loved all of the jewels and the gold and the power. And, you know, she was really up herself and like she put people down and she thought she was the best that there ever was. And of course, she wanted to be queen and keep on getting all that power. But actually, at the time, no one was saying that. It was only really in hindsight. Um, And I think, again, lots of those arguments still come in today with our cult of celebrity today. You know, although Meghan Markle was already a famous woman in her own rights, there's still this suspicion of, well, why would she want to be married to a prince, you know? And why is she getting all of this attention and being in the news? You know, she must want even more. She must be greedy and self-centred. And again, it's those same kinds of arguments that come up. I think if anything, it just kind of shows our connection to people who went hundreds of years beforehand that, you know, a lot of the time we like to think we're so much better than people in the medieval period. But actually, there's quite a lot of things that we have in common uh, today. It brings us closer, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah, it just bridges the gap and you think, yeah, this is this is probably how they felt. This is this. is Yeah, we can relate. Yeah, definitely. So how did uh, people feel about witches? 
when the first one was accused so when Joan was accused how did people feel about witches so when Joan was accused um so this is early 1400s in England people were still not very aware of witches England kind of lagged behind the rest of the continent uh so in sort of mainland Europe the 1300s was really when these ideas of witchcraft started to develop a bit more and you see it at lots of different courts you see it at the French court in their royal family There's accusations uh, when their king is suffering from mental illness. There's the sort of accusations that his sister-in-law, a a female relative, might be having some influence over him in terms of magic because his mental illness often calmed when she was in his presence. Uh, So you have these kinds of suspicions. And even at the court of the Pope, there's lots of people who are getting accused of these things. And so these ideas are starting to circulate and people are starting to realise that actually these can be political accusations. But England was still a little bit further behind. Um, I mean, there was still talk of magic and potions and things like that in the 1300s. You do have people sort of saying that people might bewitch people and sort of there's a couple of smaller cases and things like that of local men and religious men who might have been caught up on perhaps dabbling on the wrong side of astrology so it's definitely around and people are kind of aware of it as a concept you know the the monarchy isn't scared of it people going about their daily lives are not worried that witches are going to get them kind of thing and yes it's it's sort of early 1400s you start to get a bit more understanding and awareness and certainly the case against Joan would have raised this a lot more you know once the queen has been accused of using a man to have evil magic against the king that will start to get people thinking oh you know is that a thing that that does exist and within a few decades it does start to become a bit more of a worry so when you get the second case in the book uh, with Eleanor when she's accused the king Henry VI is actually really worried you know he does seem to think that there has been a genuine attempt on his life and he pays to have churches across England say prayers for his protection against magic. So he's properly worried and he's getting the church, this powerful uh, religious institution to pray for him and protect him from these evil witches. And so you can already see that shift going on that actually this is a bit more dangerous and that people are being accused more and more. And generally it is still seen as fairly harmless. So as I said, it's still a thing for the church to deal with. It's not an actual crime to use witchcraft, it's seen as more closely related to heresy. So the idea is that if you're a witch or you're using magic, then to be able to do so, you have to be in league with the devil or demons. And so to do that, you're obviously turning your back on God. So it's seen more as a heretical thing uh, rather than a crime. And so this means that a lot of the time, the church is actually quite lenient. Um, So in Eleanor's case, she's got a number of accomplices. And one of them is a woman called the Witch of and she's known to be a witch. And about 10 years earlier, she had already gotten in trouble for using witchcraft. But as I said, it's not seen as anything too serious. And the church basically give her a bit of a slap on the wrist. They return her to the custody of her husband and just say, you know, keep your keep your eye on your wife. Don't let her do that witchcraft business again and, and we'll be OK. You know, so she doesn't even get punished for this. Um, once she's then found to have been doing it again, 
that's when she does have this serious punishment. But that's more because she's seen as a relapsed heretic rather than the fact she was doing witchcraft. Um, And so that's why she ends up getting burnt at the stake rather than the men who were hanged. And that's because heretics were burnt. And so she was seen as a heretic. So again, as I said, you know, that case kind of shows both sides of it, that it can still be a serious crime and serious enough for you to be killed for it. But at the same time, it can also be seen as not serious enough that you don't need any punishment at all. So yeah, early 1400s, it's still very much people getting more of an idea of it. They've heard about cases from the continent. They're aware that actually there probably might be people who can use magic, but both society and the church and the crown aren't yet too worried about it. How aware were the common people of these accusations against all the royal women? It definitely sort of develops as the period goes on. Um, With the Joan, it's really hard to tell how aware people were because the nature of the accusations against her were almost certainly false and they were done very much for the benefit of the crown whilst also still trying to protect her. There wasn't too much propaganda spread about it and it's quite hard to find records showing exactly why she was imprisoned. So people must have known, obviously, that she had been sort of taken into custody, but she's in a very cushy kind of house arrest in various castles. She's still got nice clothes and servants. And so the real reason for her being imprisoned might not have circulated too much. So there might have been some rumours going around but barely any of the chronicles really mention it. If they do mention it, it's just a line or two. So that kind of shows to us that it wasn't necessarily big gossip. And it's also kind of one of those pieces of evidence that kind of suggests that people at the time knew that they were false accusations, Mm. just by the fact that they're not seizing upon it. You know, Mm. the Queen was accused of being a witch. That's really big gossip. Um, And so the fact that no one's really talking about it kind of suggests it was kind of either known to be false or certainly kept on the down low, really. But as the other cases go on, it becomes much, much more widespread. Eleanor, who's the second woman in the book, she is put on trial for her witchcraft. And this was huge, huge gossip. So she's married to the heir to the throne. There's a full force of the law up against her. It's a huge trial. Um, She's made to do a public penance in London on the busiest market days in the busiest places. So they wanted everybody to be talking about this. They wanted everybody to know. And in contrast to Joan, every single uh, chronicle written in English in that period mentions her case. Everybody does. There's not one that doesn't. And a lot of the time it's in a lot of detail as well. So Mm. it's huge, huge gossip. There were songs made about it and poems that went long after her death. Um, So definitely that spread and just kept on going. And you have a similar uh, situation with the Woodfills. So uh, Jaquetta um, of Luxembourg, who gets accused, uh, she also has these sort of false accusations up against her. But again, it's really one of the things that the people accusing her did was to utilise gossip and utilise the fact that witchcraft is becoming more well known and trying to spread these rumours around. And, you know, she even says when she's trying to get it put down on the official record that the charges against her were false, it says, you know, in the parliament record that you know, everybody in the land is hearing about this, you know, it's put her name, they sort of say her name's been put into disrepute, because everybody's talking about how she's a witch. So already it's spreading everywhere. And then this gets used against her daughter, Elizabeth, uh, when Richard III is accusing her of witchcraft. Um, He's talking about 
uh, her mother and her and Elizabeth being witches. And again, in the official record, it's saying, as everybody knows, you know, as is the common opinion of the land, they are witches. So he's saying, you know, everybody knows that they're witches. I'm just telling everyone now that they're witches. And that shows again that even though Jaquetta had it proven false on the official record in Parliament that the, the accusations against her were lies, still decades later, it's coming up and saying, well, everybody knows that they were a witch. So it shows that power of gossip and how it just outlasts people, even if it isn't even true in the first place. So yeah, it really becomes much more of a thing as the century goes on. Eleanor's the only one that actually admits to being a witch. How true do you think that was? Do you think she was doing it for other reasons? Yeah, so Eleanor is really interesting for that because it is such a question mark. I think out of all the women in the book, she's the one who's most likely to have resorted to witchcraft, but it's very much of a different level to what's kind of accused of her. So basically, she admits that she's been using this other woman, the Witch of Eye. She said that she's been using this known witch, but she says instead of trying to kill the king, which is the accusations against her, she was just using this witch for fertility potions. So she's been married to her husband for over a decade. They've never had any children. So she's saying, you know, I was just using these potions to try and have a child with my husband. And she also kind of says that, you know, it was also a way to make him fall in love with her again. So kind of harking back to the fact that she was his mistress before she was his wife. And it's really interesting because it would have been a really, really valid thing for her to have been using this woman for some fertility potions. You know, there's lots of suggestions that this witch was used by other women at court for similar reasons. Obviously, these sort of potions and things would have been quite herbal remedies. So there's a little bit of a blurred line between what counts as medicine, what counts as witchcraft, what counts as religion. You know, people would go to church and pray to have a baby. And so, you know, is that too different to taking a potion and sort of saying some magical words to try and have a baby? And so that very much could have been the case. It could also have just been a really clever ploy on her behalf to try and save her life. You know, she's got multiple people who've been called in as witnesses who are willing to say, yes, she hired us to kill the king. So if she just denied everything, she doesn't really have a leg to stand on. The evidence is weighed against her. So if she admits to using witchcraft, but not using it for nefarious and treasonous purposes, it's a way to kind of give credence to this pile of evidence against her whilst lessening the charges. So it is, it's, it's quite difficult to kind of tell which side that falls upon. And part of that difficulty is just because so much of this had a fine line between science and magic. Um, so she's accused of using astrology and astrological charts to try and predict the death of the king. Now, astrology for many people was seen as a science. You know, mm. kings and queens across Europe, even at the papal court, they all had astrologers there. And there was lots and lots of books about how astrology was a science. Doctors were expected to know astrology because it was thought that how you treated a patient would vary depending on lots of astrological alignments. So it was seen as a serious science. Even if some people did question the validity of that, most people did see it as a science. And so again, you know, Eleanor 
probably did use some astrological charts with some of these men to try and tell the future a bit. But that wasn't necessarily, it was that really fine line between does this count as magic or is this a science? And in lots of cases, the the tipping scale into magic is when people decided they didn't like what you were doing. You know, if you made an astrological chart and told the king that he was going to have a really good battle and he was going to beat his enemies... Everybody loved that. But, you know, suddenly Eleanor has an astrological chart that says the king might die and they sort of go, oh, maybe that's magic instead. So that also, as I said, that that makes it such more of a blurred line as to what exactly she did and didn't do. I think she certainly did some questionable things, but I don't think she necessarily did anything that other people all around her were not doing as well. She had the worst outcome out of all the women do you think mm. at the beginning she thought she would have been like Joan and possibly maybe put away for a couple of years and then come back out again? But when uh, Marjorie and the, the other two were executed, that must have been really terrifying. Was there, was there ever a point where Eleanor thought she was going to get executed? Yeah, so um, I think with Eleanor, she's very shrewd and she kind of realises very early on that that the tide is against her. And her and Humphrey, her husband, did have various enemies at court. Humphrey was the heir to the throne, but he was also quite controversial. And he had a lot of old-fashioned opinions that the newer sort of clique at court didn't really agree with. And he'd already had quite a lot of run-ins with people at court. And so Eleanor, I think, was very aware that something was happening against her. And very quickly before any accusations have even come out, she flees to sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. So I think she must have heard whispers that something was happening. And I think she very cleverly analysed, this is not going to go well for me and I need to do everything I can to protect myself. And that turned out to be the best thing that she could have done. Because she was in sanctuary, she was protected from the law courts. So they wanted to try her for treason, which is what her accomplices were tried for. But there wasn't really any precedent, A, to really kind of pull her out of sanctuary, but also because of her status, because she was such a high status woman, there wasn't really any precedent for how she should be tried, because people are meant to be tried by a court of their peers. And how do you really have a peer for a woman that high up? And so they couldn't really extract her to put her on trial for that. The downside for her was, as I said, witchcraft was seen as a religious crime at this time and churches had their own courts. So whilst she couldn't be pulled out for treason, she could be tried for the witchcraft elements um, of the case. So she was put on trial uh, for that side of it, which would have been some comfort for her because, again, the church didn't quite have, they didn't have the sort of right powers to to put people to death. Um, It had to be coming from the um, secular side of that. So even if she was found guilty, she probably was aware that she might not be executed. But obviously, there's always exceptions to this. You know, she's accused of killing the king um, and Henry VI could kind of decide to do something, you know, of his own volition. And in fact, several of the chronicles and the ballads written after the fact do say that actually Henry VI did step in and protect her because, you know, they'd been really close throughout the time he'd grown up. She'd been his aunt for over a decade. They knew each other very well. And so whilst there's lots of evidence that he did believe she was acting against him, you know, she is still a family member at the end of the day. So it may well be that he did actually step in to try and give her some level of protection. But it's 
certainly would have been a scary time for her. She would have been very aware of the fact that she was a social upstart. You know, Joan was protected by the fact that she was royalty through and through. You know, not only had she been the English queen, she had come from the sort of uh, a branch of the Luxembourg royal family. Uh, she had relatives in lots of royal courts across Europe. She had been Duchess of Brittany beforehand. So her status very much would have protected her. She had lots of powerful relatives in lots of powerful countries. And so they never would have risked executing her and upsetting people. But Eleanor doesn't have the same protections. You know, as I said, her father's a knight. She doesn't have powerful relatives. There aren't people there who can fight for her and vouch for her safety and look after her. So she's in a much more vulnerable position. And as I said, she's she's very aware that actually these things are piling up against her fast. As soon as they start bringing in all the witnesses and all of the evidence and people are standing there in front of her saying, yes, you told me to do this, she would have been quite helpless and quite hopeless, I'm sure. And um, yeah, I think it is very much her, her married status and her relationship with Henry VI that probably did save her as well as her flight to Sanctuary but she was then imprisoned for the rest of her life. And again, she might have hoped after a few years that she might have been released. And in fact, there were calls for her to be released. One of the Chronicles records um, an interaction with Henry VI where he's visiting Greenwich, which is where Eleanor and Humphrey had spent a lot of their married life together. Hmm. And a woman on the street accosts him and says, you know, you should bring Eleanor back to her husband. You know, it's terrible what you're doing. So there definitely was a belief sort of in society as well that actually a woman of her status shouldn't be locked away and treated like that you know she should be treated more honorably she should be allowed guests she should be allowed to see her husband um, and not treated so harshly and so she might well have hoped that the power of her husband being the heir to the throne would have been enough to free her at some point and sadly that didn't happen for her her husband doesn't do anything for her at all do you think he believed the accusations it's a good question, that really. I mean, that's it definitely really struck me when writing and researching that I couldn't find any concrete evidence that Humphrey had tried to do anything to save Eleanor. And again, it's a bit tricky with the nature of the sources that survive. You know, he may well have said things in private behind closed doors and sort mm. of pleaded with his nephew and tried to talk to him. But certainly there's nothing written down. You know, there's no petitions in Parliament of him asking for her to be returned. The Chronicles, when they're talking about the trial against her and what happens afterwards, Humphrey's name is not mentioned anywhere. He's not shown as being there. He's not shown as trying to intervene. And again, even for sort of years afterwards, there's not really any evidence that he's doing anything that we know that survives. The only thing is right upon his death, um, he gets arrested along with all of his servants and they're accused of treason against Henry VI and they say that they were planning on freeing Eleanor and then overthrowing Henry VI together and then ruling together but he dies just after he's arrested so he's never faces these charges and so it's left to his household to kind of deal with these charges after his death 
by which point he's already died. And so they don't really have much need to proceed with that. But there's certainly that suggestion there. And so it may be that at that point, you know, it had been five or six years after Eleanor's trial. So it might be that he was hopeful that maybe, okay, it's, things have died down a bit now. You know, everything's a bit calmer. We've had some time to think about everything. You know, maybe now is the time that people will be more receptive. But equally, it could have just been another accusation thrown against them, you know, sort of saying, we need to get rid of him somehow. Well, we accused his wife of witchcraft a few years ago. Let's accuse him of a similar thing. And so it's really hard to know whether he was planning on appealing for her or if that's just another story. But it is really, really interesting that there aren't those records. You know, you you want to believe that he was trying to do things behind the scenes and that he didn't just abandon his wife of 15 odd years and everything. But it's definitely really interesting just how quiet the sources are on that and what exactly he was doing. So it's yeah. like he was ghosting her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really extreme ghosting. <laughs> extreme. She was cancelled, he was ghosting her. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, you were talking about uh, love magic, so how common was that for people to use love magic? It's one of the things that really does develop during this century is as people are trying to pin down what magic is and what people can do and what witches are, there's a bit of an idea that Actually, there's different types of magic. So it's like I said sort of earlier on, you've kind of got a bit more of an analytical look at magic and it's not just people of magic and they can do all these crazy things. You know, it's okay, well, what can people do? And there's this idea that the powerful levels of magic that people can use isn't available to everybody. You have to be educated. You have to be able to read Latin and read lots of books and learn how to do this really high level magic. So not anybody can summon an evil spirit. Not anybody can tell the future. You have to really learn and train and be educated in that. And so that really influences the way that people start to think about magic this century um, and it influences these cases because it means that all of these women generally are thought to have had male accomplices because if they're saying that these women have tried to kill the king with magic, no one will believe that a woman can do that because generally at this period, the people who are educated are men and normally they're religious men. And so the idea that a queen would just have the magic to summon demons and try and kill the king, it's not really believable. So she needs a man to have done that. But what is more believable is that women are very emotional creatures and they can't control themselves. They just give in to every urge and whim that they have. They very much have available to them emotional forms of magic. And one of these main things is this idea of love magic. And it's sort, you know, because women love men, they will use this magic to make men fall in love with them, to have their babies. If a man scorned them and doesn't want to go out with them, then she'll use magic for revenge against him. Um, so it very much becomes this feminine idea that women get involved in love magic and men don't. Men get involved with the evil spirits and women get involved 
involved with the love magic. This idea of more simple forms of magic. So you might use herbs and charms. Figurines become quite important. Uh, you have lots of wax figurines um, that will represent people. And again, this is something anybody could make that, you know, wax is very widely available. There's candles lighting everywhere. People write letters all the time and have wax seals. So it's very easy for someone to forge a figurine out of wax and then say some spells over it. And so this, as I said, becomes very attached to women. And so that makes it easier for the women in the book to be accused of love magic, because it's something that everybody would understand a woman would have access to that. And it's also a little bit in nature of the situations they find themselves in. You know, all of these women at one point or another made an unusual marriage. Um, and lots of them made these unusual marriages into the royal family. So as I said, Eleanor Cobham is a low status knight's daughter and she marries a prince of England. Elizabeth Woodville, uh, she has a bit more of a sort of question mark on her status because her mother's very high status. But again, her father is a knight and she marries the king of England. And so it becomes a lot easier, like we were saying beforehand with sort of Anne Boleyn, is that it's a lot easier to say, well, you know, how would a woman like that marry a man like that? And there were well, two generations I, between them. There were only two because it's the grandfather and that's mm, the grandson. So yeah, the wives are both accused of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's very easy then to sort of turn to love magic. You know, it's something that women are thought to do anyway. And then you sort of go, well, why else would they make that marriage? You know, it can't be that the woman is nice or pretty or intelligent. You know, it must be that she used magic to ensnare this man. So it kind of just feeds in from both directions, really, as a kind of natural accusation to make. All of them, actually, all four of their marriages were love matches. It wasn't an arranged marriage. Joan just randomly married the King of England out of nowhere and the other three did this, they married I love. Do you think that had an, an impact on it as well then? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's a very interesting century for changing social norms. And up to that point, it was very much the kings and the princes would marry foreign brides. And, you know, there were a few exceptions to that. Um, So the black prince, the previous century, he married an English woman. But generally, that was the pattern that happened. Um, And Elizabeth Woodville was the first English-born Queen of England for several centuries. It had been hundreds of years from the last one. So she's a real sort of trailblazer. But then, as you say, her grandson, Henry VIII, married multiple English women uh, in his reign. And then, you know, his daughter Elizabeth didn't marry anyone at all. And so although in sort of the Tudor period, these kind of different expectations of marriages in the royal family become a lot more commonplace, the 1400s is very much when this is starting to happen. And, you know, Joan still fits the mould to an extent, because as I said, she is a European noble. She's related to lots of royal families. She's been the Duchess of Brittany. So she is high. She is the, the correct status to marry the King of England, even if it was a love match. But as you say, from Eleanor, um, Jaquetta marries a man far below her station. Elizabeth, again, a surprise love marriage. And so it really is a time where people are kind of 
starting to accept changing roles in the royal family, but there's still lots of suspicion around it. And again, if the woman is the right woman, then it's okay. Uh, but if she's the wrong woman, then they're not on board still. <laughs> yeah, I hate to bring her up. I hate to be a man hater, but it was all men in this case that was throwing the accusations and kind of looks for they wanted either money or power away from these women. Was that common for the common witch or was it just for the royal ones? It is definitely very interesting that, that as you say, it's it's very much kind of the men throwing it against the women. There's, there's kind of two reasons for this, really. There is is definitely an element of the men wanting to remove powerful women at court and take their power and money for themselves. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the sole motivation of the accusations against Joan is she was very, very rich and the English crown needed money. Um, And so, you know, why not take it from her? And with sort of Chiquetta and Elizabeth, you know, the accusations against Chiquetta come from uh, Warwick, um, who's known as the kingmaker, and he's spent the best part of a decade being the most powerful man at court because he's best friends with the king and he's the king's cousin and the king listens to everything that he says. And so he's had this huge period of great power. And then Elizabeth and her family come in and Edward starts to listen to them a bit more. He starts to grow into his kingship a bit as well and has his own ideas. And so Warwick starts to lose some of that power. And so he sort of really chafes against this and blames the Woodvilles. And within that, there's very much that feminine influence of the mother and the wife over them. And so there's definitely elements there of men being unhappy about the power and wealth that women at court are wielding. But the other side of that is just the very simple fact that these women, by being women, were more vulnerable than the men at court. And there's definitely several of these cases where the real target was the men around the women. So in Eleanor's case, the target was very much Humphrey. People wanted to get rid of Humphrey at court. They didn't want him there anymore. They didn't like the influence he had. He was the heir to the throne, so people couldn't really say no to him. But they didn't like him. They didn't like his ideas, and they wanted to move on and modernise the court, and he was holding them back. But you can't get rid of him. He is a prince of England. He is the heir to the throne. If something happens to Henry VI, he is king. So you can't just get rid of him like any other rival. And so the only way you can get rid of him is to discredit him in the eyes of Henry VI. And Henry VI loves his uncle. (laughs) He's grown up with him. Uh, He's always been around. They're really good friends. They spend Christmas together. They give each other presents. So how are you going to suddenly turn him against his uncle? Well, it has to be something big, something that makes him question his loyalty. And so the way to do that is through his wife. She's a much easier target. She doesn't have land and money and armies of her own. And so if you bring her down, then Humphrey gets called into question by association. And so she's a way in. And it is still a similar situation with the Woodfills. You know, although Warwick wasn't keen on Elizabeth and Jaquetta's influence, it was also very much the male members of the Woodville family who were getting the power. They were getting the titles. They were getting the positions at court that he wanted. And so he had already made a move against the men and he had actually executed two members of the Woodville family 
And suddenly he kind of needs justification for the fact that he's just judicially murdered these two people who were relatives of the king and queen. And so, again, the way to do that is if he can prove that Jaquetta was a witch. And if he can prove that she's been using witchcraft, then all of his claims that the Woodvilles are evil will be proved and he'll be justified in his actions. So again, it's very much this tactic of bring down the woman to prove that the men are bad because you can't prove the men are bad by yourself. Um, So it's this really interesting dual thing where they're being attacked because they're really rich and powerful, but they're also being attacked because they're weaker than the other people around. So it's this really weird balance that women at the time had at court, that they were really powerful behind the scenes, and yet they didn't have any official position at court that they could be blamed for doing things wrong in. Do you want to know, Elizabeth, they were queens to kings who had just won through wars or something else. They didn't have steady dynasties. Do you think that played a part in it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a really tumultuous century. As you say, it sort of starts with the new king on the throne who's just kicked off the old one. You have a big old civil war that happens in the middle of it. And that's how Edward comes to the throne. Mm. And there is so much instability as a result of that. And, you know, I do make the point in the book that right near the end of this period when we're talking about 1483 to 1485, you've got two or three years and there's four different kings of England. You know, you have Edward IV, he dies and his son kind of becomes king, Edward V. He kind of gets thrown off by his uncle, Richard III. And then you have the Battle of Bosworth and the Tudors start with King Henry. And so just a couple of years, you've got four different kings of England. And that would have caused so much instability. And when you do look at all these different political accusations of witchcraft, not just in England, but across Europe at the end of this period, they always proliferate when there is lots of upheaval in the kingdom. So I mentioned earlier about the the woman in the French royal family who had been accused. You know, again, it's really unstable. The king isn't mentally competent. He has delusions that he's made of glass. He doesn't even know he's king a lot of the time. And so you've got a king who isn't a king and all these factions fighting for power. That's the perfect opportunity to accuse someone of witchcraft because you're vying for power against these other factions. And so definitely the the political events that are going on, it's dangerous for anybody at this time. Even if you're king in England, you could very quickly not be king anymore. And so if the king isn't safe, nobody at court is safe. Do you think the TV series and the book about the White Queen, do you think that that has kind of skewed people's opinions of Jaquetta and Elizabeth when it comes to witchcraft? I think it's really interesting because Philippa Gregory, you know, does a lot of research. Uh, you know, she hasn't just kind of read some people's names and then just written a yeah. story about them. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that is based on really great research. But obviously it is a piece of fiction and it's meant to be entertaining. And so things might be skewed as to the reality and people might be hammed up a bit or, you know, there's creative license that happens. And so... You know, there's always going to be question marks about how people are portrayed. And because of the nature of the time, 
people can be baddies or goodies depending on whose story you're telling you know so in my book I'm kind of writing about how Jaquetta and Elizabeth have had these really unfair accusations made against them but they were by no means angels you know they they did questionable things and if you were writing a book from the perspective of Warwick the kingmaker they're very much the villains in the story you know they're these horrible people who've come along and taken Edward away from him and taken all of the good positions at court and they've taken all of the good brides off of the marriage market and so there's always going to be that bias depending on whose perspective you're telling the story from and that's that's true for all of the people in the book that I've written about you know I have a soft spot for Humphrey because I was writing about Eleanor but you know in lots of ways he wasn't the best person either (laughs) you know he he sort of was very old-fashioned and you know sometimes cared more about culture and reading than necessarily about thinking where the politics of the time were going and that actually things had moved on since 30 years ago when he was a young boy. But I think what's really great about those series is just bringing these people to light in the first place, you know, making this really, really interesting period of time that's full of intrigue and war and people turning allegiances overnight and so much happens. And there's women right at the centre of it, which again is what's really great about the White Queen series. You know, it's named after the woman and women were right at the centre of the Wars of the Roses on, on both sides. And for a lot of the media we get about the medieval period, it's all about men and the wars and how women were just stuck at home making babies and being attacked and having a rotten time, kind of a la Game of Thrones. And so having a series that kind of shows actually women were there and they were doing more than that. And actually they were really important and they were so important that they were accused of witchcraft. I think that's really important to show, to sort of change our perception of the period. That's where I've seen them first as well. Edward the the fourth. Oh yes, that he existed. That's right. Who knew? Elizabeth Woodville. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, it's funny because and when I when I watch the White Queen, I am all for Elizabeth. And then I'll go on and I'll watch the the White Princess. I hate Elizabeth. I hate her. <laughs> because it's a different actress, that's why. <laughs> yeah, but it is, you know, again, sort of in my book, Margaret of Anjou sometimes comes across as a bit of the villain mm-hmm. because obviously she's on the other side. But, you know, I do try and sort of bring in bits that actually, you know, really all Margaret was doing was trying to defend her husband and her son. And again, if you write the book from her perspective, Woodville's are these people who have just turned up out of nowhere, stolen her throne from her and taken her kingdom. And so, yeah, again, it's very much depending on whose story you tell, everybody's got some good and bad sides. And so that can really come out um, depending on who's telling the story. I think that's why it is really important to read lots of different sources and different perspectives because just human nature, we're all good and bad in certain ways and they all had uh, reasons for doing things. Some of them not so good, some of them good. So it's really interesting when you're reading history and Mm. writing about it and watching it. Yeah, completely. Yeah, definitely. We kind of finish off with a couple of questions. What lessons from history do you want people to learn? Oh, that's a good one. I think something I touched upon earlier, really, which is how similar we are to people who have come beforehand. It's something I've always enjoyed about medieval history is 
you can read about how different the world was. You know, the understanding of science was completely different. The world around you was so different. There was war and disease, but there was also, you know, living from the land directly and all of this wealth and extravagance at the court. And life was just so different in so many ways that it can often feel really alien. But I always love those sources that you read where you go, oh my gosh, people have not changed in a thousand years. You know, we might be living in a very different world, but who we are sort of as a psyche is so similar. You know, people are fighting over the exact same things as now. I mean, I remember being at university and reading a chronicle and I think it was from way back in like William, no, I think it was Henry the First, perhaps. It was very early on, sort of 1100s-ish. And um, it was this story about these two men at court who had fallen out and the king was trying to get something done but he couldn't get it done because these different departments at at court weren't talking to each other and when he was trying to find out why it was because the people who were running them had had a falling out and the reason they'd fallen out was because one of them wanted a piece of cake at a feast and the other one hadn't let him have a piece of cake and I'm just like oh my god a thousand years ago people are fighting about cake and you know it's just so relatable and I think that's just really important to remember because it also humanizes people you know when we're trying to figure out why people did what they did with the limited sources we've got and hundreds of years distance that just remembering that that actually these were people and as you say they weren't wholly good and they weren't wholly bad they're not cartoon villains who were like plotting these great Machiavellian schemes you know they were just people trying to survive in a very harsh world that was very different from us and although certain moral standards might have been different to what we have today they had reasons for what they believed and what they did and I think that's just something really important for us to remember in all aspects of life is that we are all people <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. Gemma and I try to have, uh, when we do uh, non-interview episodes, when it's just us kind of uh, discovering the cosmos of a topic, we sometimes find these what we call sort of human moments. And we did one with Queen Charlotte, I think, when she, uh, when her gown during her wedding kept falling off her. And I said, I can relate to that because I've had, you know, like jeans that would be just just sliding off me for no reason or what have you. And I I can just so picture myself going through that. What was was the other one we had, uh, the human moments? I think we've had loads of them to be fair I think they're just it's insane it's just insane how you read things like that and you're like yeah I've done that before well there was there was um there was a great one that was sort of doing the rounds on social media earlier this year about a courtier at the court of Elizabeth I who had sort of farted in the presence of the queen and was so embarrassed that he had like fled abroad for seven years he sort of finally returned and then the queen says my lord i'd forgotten the fart but you know like you know it's just it's silly and as you say there's reason that like horrible histories and stuff is so popular like history is silly sometimes and people fart like these things happen and it's the same all these years later Because of cake, yeah. Because- oh, I remembered it. I remembered it. It was Elizabeth I and uh, Robert Dudley because she was trying to ship him off to Scotland to marry Mary Queen of Scots. And Gemma and I were discussing how normally when you read this in books, the author usually says, "I don't understand why. Why would she? Would she want to do that?" And we're saying how we get it because it's such a woman thing to do. <laughs> because the, the way to kind of say. 
I am so over him. I am yeah. shipping him off to marry my frenemy. I mean, yeah. what could be more, you know, I'm obviously over him. Yeah, I'm so over him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yours. He's all yours. I do not care. Yeah. <laughs> she would have killed <laughs> that's the point yes she would. <laughs> she would cry and eat cake and she would not be happy yes do you think that you would have survived a witch trial oh i don't know it's very difficult because it's very dependent on where you are and when <laughs> i think you had to be quite clever and you had to have good resources to survive you know if you're someone who was on the edge of society and not very well connected then you didn't stand much chance I have a very large extended family so I'm going to say that I'm going to hope that they would have pulled in all of their favors and managed to save me so that's my hopeful thing (laughs) (laughs) I love it Natalie would be dead (laughs) thank you for that okay We would not survive. Our family would probably be the one accusing us. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. I'm dead. Bye, yeah, bye. we're dead. <laughs> what mystery would you like solved from history? Oh, gosh. Okay. A mystery. There's, there's quite a few that I'd be interested in, but I think considering the period of my book, I have to say the prince is in the tower. It's a classic mystery. And, you know, at the end of the day, whatever happened doesn't really change things. But I think it would just be interesting to know what exactly happened. And I think for me, more than anything, whether it was planned or not, you know, whether it was a strategic choice to do so, or if someone took it into their own hands to do it, you know, a, a servant or a retainer sort of killed them off and then Richard III had to deal with with the consequences of that. I think that would be quite interesting to know sort of what the planning behind it was, possibly more so than whether they actually died or didn't die, which is the kind of classic mystery. Yeah, I think I'd like to know that kind of thought process. Yeah, good answer so it's nearly Halloween. So what is your favourite witching movie? Ooh. Or TV show? Yeah, I think I might go TV show because I don't know that I've watched too many witchy witchy movies, but when I was younger, I loved the TV series Charmed. Three American witch sisters. And I just thought it was really great. And I think it is still really good because mm. it's sort of one of those early ones that's actually more for grown-ups, you know, at a time where sort of magic and witches and things is like a teenage childish thing. And even today, you know, obviously it's so popular to have the teen who finds out they've got magical powers and it's all amazing, <laughs> you know. I think it's really interesting perspective to look at grown women who might have magic and how that they might navigate life, you know. It's not just like, oh, how do I do my exam at school and also save the world you know it's like how do I have a job (laughs) adult responsibilities so yeah I think that's always a fun one thank you so much what are you working on just now is there anything to look out for yeah so um at the moment I'm working on uh something a little bit different uh and fun uh which is an illustrated history of women in the medieval period so going to be shorter than my other projects and obviously lots more pictures but yeah that's that's going to be coming out hopefully towards the end of next year yeah it's just a good fun challenge to sort of try and condense 
500 years <laughs> of women <laughs> into a short book. But no, it's been quite fun to take a broader look. You know, my, my first two books were very much biographies and looking at particular people, which is really fun in itself. But it's been quite good to have a more broader thematic look at just what was it like being a woman in medieval Europe. Oh, that's brilliant. Have a short um, life, probably. Yes. <laughs> Lots of babies. Lots <laughs> of babies. Yeah. And the short yeah. <laughs> uh, where can people find your books and find you? My books are available in the UK and also in North America. There's lots of places if you're in other countries as well, that you can buy it. But major uh, bookshops, uh, lots of online websites like the Big A um, and everything. I write a history blog called Just History Posts. So I have a blog website for that where I do in-depth posts. But I also have a Facebook account where I do sort of uh, regular smaller bits of history and updates on there. And I also have a newsletter connected to that as well, where I sort of share bits of history as well. But yeah, just have a search for me and you'll find something, I'm sure. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, I had a really good chat and lots of really interesting questions have been asked before, which is always fun. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque podcast on Instagram. And we have an account on the X of the Twitter where we are at Baroque podcast. And if you'd like to read our blog and find out more, please visit the website ifitaintbaroque.art. If you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, and I have three at the moment, one about the medieval and Tudor monarchs, one about the Georgian and Windsor monarchs, and one about naughty London in Southwark, please join me. The website is reignoflondon.com and there will be links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much and see you next time.